This morning, I will be reading from 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You know, a question I like to ask visitors to the church is, what do you think about the church? I mean, what, what is... What comes to your mind? What's your history with the church? Have you had a good experience, a bad experience? And I hear all kinds of answers to that question, but one thing that I tend to find is a, a lack of understanding of the church, or at least a lack of an ability to explain the nature of the church. And it's funny because within Christianity, there are some key words, glory, church, grace, that we hear it, we understand it, but we have trouble articulating it. So it's worthwhile to rethink the church. That's really what this series is about, trying to reestablish, to remind ourselves, to rethink about the nature of the church. Now, if you've been here for a while, you know that this pulpit tends to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, back to the Old Testament. We're trying to cover all of Scripture. We speak out of historical literature, wisdom literature, like just Proverbs, uh, the epistles, like we are now, narratives, trying to give the full counsel of God. Now, what we're looking at today is called 1 Timothy, and it's named such for the complicated reason that it was the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. You might be shocked to find that actually the next letter is called 2 Timothy, which kind of there's a pattern forming for you. And, and then there's Titus that follows that. And these are traditionally known as the pastoral epistles, uh, where Paul the apostle is speaking to these two young pastors, Timothy and Titus, and giving them instructions about how the church ought to behave, how we ought to think about ourselves, how we ought to live with the world, how we ought to live with ourselves. It, this isn't just a pastoral manual, it's really for all the people of God so that you know this is what I would expect the church to be. This is how I ought to participate in it. This is really the theme of the entire letter, and you'll see this in chapter 3, we'll get to that in a few weeks, but Paul writes, remember now, Paul's going to Macedonia, he's going on a, another mission trip, and he wants Timothy to remain, and here's what he says, hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So it's interesting. He's telling us how we ought to view ourselves and how we ought to behave with ourselves. He's really talking to his young protege, saying this is how it ought to be done. So as we go through the book, we're going to be looking at orthodoxy of the church. We're going to be looking at the leadership of the church, the membership of the church, the worship of the church, those things that threaten the church. All, all these things we'll cover so that by the end of the series, you should have a much better, deeper, hopefully clearer understanding of, oh, this is what the church is, and this is how it behaves. Now, Paul begins and ends the same way. So chapter 1 and chapter uh, 6 are going to parallel each other, where Paul says to Timothy, hey, you better be on point to protect against false doctrine and promote true doctrine or what he'll say is sound doctrine. So here's what I'd like to do. We're going to first look at the, the hope of the church. What is the church resting on? Because we're going to see that in the first two verses. Th this is what the church is resting on, this idea of grace and, and mercy and peace. A and then we'll look at the mandate of the church. What are we supposed to do? I, I mean, what are, what are the marching orders kind of thing? And then we'll look at the message of the church, how we get this apart or how we get this out in verses 8 to 11. So look with me at the hope of the church, and you might have passed over it, not even seen it. Let me read it to you again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul, right out of the gate, says, I'm the author, but he says more than that. He says, I'm an apostle. Uh, now, the word apostle just means to be sent out with a message. And, and so he says, I'm an apostle. Now, you may see on church marquees that, oh, this one's an apostle of this church. Now, Paul's saying something different here. He says, I'm an apostle, not by some church you know, decision, not by a governmental appointment, not even by self-designation. He says, I'm an apostle by the command of God our Savior and Christ our hope. He's saying, I'm an apostle meant to bring a message from God who saves. So we see a picture of God here. He's a generous God. He's a saving God. He's a God that pursues people. So he's being sent out from a God who saves. God's not up there just kind of keeping track of what you're doing. He actually wants to save people. And so it's a God who saves. And he's sent by command of Jesus our hope that even though this world is just crushingly painful, there is a hope that will sustain us in this life. So Paul's saying, I'm an apostle, by the command of God, our Savior, and by the command of Jesus, our hope. Now, he's unique here, right? There's only 12 apostles and then Paul. He says, I was abnormally or untimely born, if you will. Uh, these are men who have been chosen by God, who have seen the resurrected Christ, Paul says they're the foundation of the church. So there's no more apostles that we're looking for. Elders kind of replace that role. The apostles, are the, you don't live in the foundation of your home. Your home has a foundation, but then there's a house that you live in. So the foundation, the apostles set up, established the church, and now he's giving us marching orders about how then to coordinate and to kind of gather ourselves together. So Paul's speaking from the command of God. We'll get back to that in a minute. But he writes to Timothy. Now, you notice, Timothy, this isn't just a collegial relationship, right? He says, my true child in the faith. What does that mean? Well, I, th I think that means, it could mean that Paul actually 
preached and Timothy came to believe through Paul's ministry. Kind of like Paul gave birth, if you will, to the faith of Timothy. It could have happened in Acts 14 when Paul went through Lystra. He preached the gospel there. He could have come to faith. Others think, no, no, no. He probably came to faith through the instruction of his mother and grandmother. We're going to hear about that. Um, and that Timothy began to follow Paul after Acts 16, when Paul went back through Lystra on his second missionary journey. Well, we don't know for certain, but what we know is Timothy became a trusted friend, assistant, associate with Paul. You see Timothy's name all over the New Testament associated with Paul. But notice, he's not just talking about this introduction, I'm, I'm Paul and here's Timothy. He says to him these incredible words. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, we fly right over those, getting to the meat of the letter. Uh, let's just pause for a minute. You talk about grace. What is grace? You know, we saying grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace is the unmerited favor through which God has woken us to himself. That, that if you're part of, he's saying the church is filled with people who are there because of the grace of God. So it's nothing we've done. We didn't position ourselves right. We didn't think our way into it. We didn't hunt and hunt and discover and get our... No, no, no. We're here because of grace. That we didn't do it. So we're recipients of this unmerited favor. But he also says mercy undergirds the church. I mean, mercy is we are not getting, the Christian understands that he or she is not getting what they really deserve. Right? They've been pardoned. They're guilty. It has, the guilt is established, but there is no repercussions for the sins that we committed. Those fell on Christ. We're a people that are constantly saying, thank you, God, for the mercy you've given me. I mean, I mean, thinking over and over, I have been given mercy. I have not received what I deserved. Rather, I had grace. And then look at peace. This idea of peace. And you know, when God forgives, it isn't just, okay, now you're cold to each other, but we're no longer, the anger isn't white hot, now it's kind of just blue cold. It's not that way. Reconciliation means now the enmity is removed. We are friends with God. We're children of God. And, and this is the nature of the covenant that God makes with his church. God has approached to us, because this is all from God. It's from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've received grace. We've received mercy. And we've received peace. This is what the church is founded upon. This is what brings us together. Do you, do you, can you admit, perhaps, that periodically we fly over these words without giving the thought and attention? Can I ask you to maybe consider thinking through these things again? Just pondering, like, look back over your life. So go take your history, for example. All the things you've thought, done, intentions of your heart. And you know that God has been merciful to you. Uh, th that, that encourages me, it strengthens me. So, so think about the nature of the hope of the church, that we are resting in not what we are becoming, but what he has done for us. We're resting in his grace and mercy and peace. And, and, then, and then secondly, can I ask you to consider your understanding of biblical authority? I mean, he is by command of God. So God has commanded Paul to tell us these things. How do you hear the apostle? So, uh, so when Ginny read the scriptures, were you listening and just trying to gain the, the point of it, which is a good thing to do, but do you hear them 
Do you hear those words coming to you like this is God speaking to you? In other words, with Paul, sometimes we read his words and we may do the salad bar thing of I like that, I like that, I don't like that, don't like that, like that, like that, and we kind of go through and pick our own. Is that what we're called to do? Now, granted, there are some difficult things he says, like a woman shall be saved through childbirth. I'll be sure to be on vacation when that passage gets preached. That's a difficult thing to speak about. It'll be in a few weeks. There are a lot of things he says that are hard. But let me ask you, is the posture of your heart when you hear those things still with the disposition to want to follow? Even if it's hard for me, I, I still want, it's God speaking to me. Because what Paul's doing here is he's not giving us suggestions. He's saying this is how you ought to run the church. So we have to make a decision. Do we believe it or not? And then last, I would just say, even in the first two verses, isn't it amazing what God does with ordinary people? Why would he send Timothy? I mean, Timothy was a child in the faith. I don't think that means early in the faith, but he was young. I mean, it could have been late 20s, maybe early 30s. Paul says, don't let anyone look down upon you for your youth. So we know that he was a younger man. But we also know in this letter that Timothy was a timid man, perhaps even melancholic, because Paul's going to say, don't give way to fear. So you know that Timothy had a factor of intimidation. I'm going to Ephesus, a, a very up-and-coming church in, in a big city, a very you know, sophisticated church, and I'm young, he's timid, he's melancholic, he may struggle. Paul even says, have a little wine with your food. Timothy may have been too much of an ascetic, you know, kind of not eating. He said, no, have a little wine. Settle your stomach down. He had some physical issues. So this, this guy's not a rock star coming into a church. He's a, he's a young, timid, perhaps somewhat physically challenged man who's going to lead a church. God uses ordinary people to do things that they can't do without his grace. So, so it's time for us, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we have to stop saying, I'm not as smart as them, I'm not as wise as them, I'm not as gifted as them, and to say, God, I am here available to do what you want me to do. And by your grace, in my weakness, you'll be made strong. So recognize that here, this thing will be given to Timothy, who in many eyes we might pass over in terms of a pastoral search. Okay, so the first thing we see is the hope of the church is resting on that grace, that mercy, and that peace. But secondly, look at the mandate of the church. Look with me at 3 to 7. This is what the church is to be about, particularly Timothy, but also all of us by extension. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So he's telling Timothy, stay put, so that you may charge, and that's a military term. It's like a, a high-ranking officer giving a charge to a subordinate. He says, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God this by faith. Jumping to six, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about what they make confident assertions. So, so, so Paul is saying to Timothy, two things you got to do. First, you need to protect the church from false teaching. So protect and promote. 
promote the stewardship of God. So there's a negative and there's a positive work. The negative is to protect the church. Well, he had said earlier to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says, savage wolves are going to come in among you and they're going to ravage the flock. You better be on point. He's telling Timothy the same thing. And he's saying certain persons, they're going to, he didn't name them, right? We're going to identify them by the fact that they teach a different doctrine, a heterodox. It's a different doctrine. They've swerved. They've wandered away. You know, if a target's here and you shoot over here, you've missed it. You know, it's swerving away. It's not hitting the doctrine given to the church by the apostles and Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know exactly what this doctrine is. We don't know how, where it's exactly different. But he gives us a clue when he says they devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Uh, maybe he's speaking about these Jewish teachers that would come in and take the Old Testament, particularly the genealogies in the book of Genesis, and, and they would kind of amplify on what was stated. So there's a book called the Book of Jubilees, which is a book by Jewish writers that it's called the Lesser Genesis because it takes the stories in Genesis and it kind of just embellishes them. So it tells you maybe about Abraham's uncle and aunt and cousin. And it kind of fills in some of the details. In fact, some of our Christian writers, when they do character sketches on New Testament characters, they can be guilty of the same thing. You're filling in details that might not be there. And he's saying they're speculating and they're chasing down things that are not producing sound doctrine. Sound means healthy and strong. And so they're speculating. Now, we also know that the different doctrine may have been, these false teachers said, marriage is bad. Listen, if you want to be a Christian, you want to be godly, don't get married. Dedicate yourself. And, and, and almost devaluing the glory of marriage. Paul will chide them for that. They said you can't eat certain foods. You know, they said sexuality, intimacy within a marriage is a bad thing. If you want to be holy, then abstain from sexuality. So they were promoting doctrines that were different than the apostolic doctrine. And, and, and you see, even in, even in 2 Timothy, they began questioning the resurrection. So, so I think that's what he's speaking about. The church is on point to make sure and identify false doctrine, a different gospel, and to charge those people who were in the church not to speak that way. And Paul also warns about the results because this kind of doctrine can bear fruit. It bears fruit of dissension. It bears fruit of, of squabbling over words, it says in chapter 6. It bears fruit of arrogance that you see there in verse 6. The fruit is going to identify the nature of the, the doctrine. In fact, it says in 19, they made shipwreck of their faith. So Paul's simply saying this to Timothy. Listen, Timothy, you go there and you encourage the people to charge those who are speaking speculative matters that don't advance the apostolic doctrine, charge them not to speak. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't engage thoughts. It doesn't mean we don't investigate. Uh, but we want to center our minds and thoughts on the doctrine of the gospel. Uh, Daniel reminded me of G.K. Chesterton who said, uh, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. So we want to make sure and, and pursue those things that are solid. So, so let me ask you, what are your pet theologies? What are the things that you devote yourself to? What podcasts? What's your, what's your diet of listening? Is it promoting 
that kind of sound doctrine or is it chasing conspiracies and controversies down? You know, do we get do we get spending our time in chasing things that aren't that profitable? When I was in seminary, I remember the first six months, you know, my mind was kind of getting expanded by the things I was reading, the ideas, talking about baptism and eschatology, kind of the end times, and talking about all these things. And I remember one day walking through the cafeteria at seminary, going to get a cup of coffee, and I saw all these pockets of people, and they all were arguing about different things. This is what you do in seminary. They're just arguing about, well, pedo-baptism versus baptism as an adult, or things on the end times, or you know, how churches ought to be structured. And I remember thinking, this can't be healthy. This can't be good, but we're not promoting the gospel with each other. We're fighting over these secondary issues, that are not adding to the strengthening of the church. So, so I, I found that to be really, so that's what he's saying is that if there are people teaching these things in the church, that you're to charge them not to do it. Rather, he says, look at verse four with me, in fact, the second half of four. He says, rather, the stewardship from God that is by faith, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So I think what he's saying here is Timothy is saying, hey, don't chase after the speculative stuff. Go after the stewardship of God. Now, of course, that begs the question, right? What's the stewardship of God? Well, the stewardship of God is what God is doing in this world. So, guys, folks, the whole Bible is about God's rescue plan, right? In the beginning, there's a garden and they fall from grace because they sin against God. Boom, immediately there is the promise that one will come and the whole rest of the Bible is this rescue operation that ends, not surprisingly, in a garden again with God when they were removed from God. So you see this redemptive arc of God throughout the history. This is the stewardship of God. This is what we're to be speaking about. How God is moving among and in his world through the work of his son to draw people, men and women, sinners, back to himself, forgiven and restored. And Paul's saying to me, that's where you drive your stake. <clears throat> that's what you want to preach. You want to preach that this stewardship of God, that's by faith. So you've got to believe it. You can hear it, but if you don't believe it, it doesn't serve you in any capacity. So it's, it's offered to you, it's accepted by faith. And then notice what Paul says. He says, the aim of our charge is love. This is the goal of our preaching. This is the goal of the church, that we would have a greater love for God and each other. And how does this love come? It doesn't come just by being more tolerant than we've been. This love comes from, what does he say? It issues from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. This is the work of God, right? When you come to God by faith that he has provided one for you. He forgives you. He purifies your heart. He takes out your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. That's what being born again is. You have, a, you have a different heart. You're purified. You're forgiven. But you also have a clean conscience. The skeletons that, we've, that we have in our body, they're forgiven. That, that we stand innocent before God because of Christ. And there's a sincere faith. Our faith isn't perfect by any stretch, but it's sincere in the fact that we are we're honest about it. Yeah, this is who we are. We're sinners, but we're saved by God's grace. So this produces a love. So Paul's simply saying this. Timothy, don't go off on speculative matters. It leads to shipwreck. Rather, promote the doctrine of the gospel. God saves through Christ that's to be accepted by faith, and you'll know it by the fruit of love. You'll know 
that Jesus said, all men, all women will know that you're my followers if you love one another. So, so that's the result of good that's the result of good orthodoxy. So is orthodoxy important for you? I think you would see orthodontics is important if your teeth need to be straightened out. Orthodoxy is straight teaching. That's essential for us. Every generation, they will struggle, we will struggle with false teaching. Every generation. That's what was glorious about the Reformation. The Reformation... I mean, it's the uncovering of the gospel that had been covered over by sacramentalism with Roman Catholicism. And here it's now exposed in all of its glory. So orthodoxy is essential. By that I mean you and I, you hearing sound doctrine, you pursuing sound doctrine. To what degree do you desire this? To what effort do you make to gain and grow? Do you see the gospel as exclusive? Do, do you pursue wanting to grow in these things of God so that it yields a life of holiness? John Stott says, it's the proper function of the mind to be exercised in growing in God's revelation. In other words, you and I are to be about using our minds to grow in the knowledge of God, which then we apply it to God's word, he says, apply it to God's world and submit to it by faith. That's our task. That's our mandate. We're going to grow in the knowledge of God. We're going to gain, not cold, dead doctrine, but doctrine that gives birth to love. That's the difference. You know, Francis Schaeffer, I always bring this up at new members meetings. You know, Francis Schaeffer was a theologian in the 20th century. And he said, uh, just having, just being orthodox is, is ineffective. That leads to cold, sterile religion. Uh, just being loving is nice, but it ends up just kind of becoming more self-centered and self-serving. You have to have both strong doctrine, understanding the gospel, which gives birth to love. They need to be together. And that's what he's saying here is, the mandate of the church is to pursue doctrine for the purposes of love. To what degree has your love grown this past year? So every year I ask you, I say, do you love Christ more than you did before? I don't measure it week to week because sometimes I may have a rotten week and I don't love anybody for that week. And so I got to go a little further out. But over the year, how much have you grown in your love? Because the best test of orthodoxy is a life that's produced that loves. So, so you can see the glory of an orthodox faith by love, charity, truth-telling, reconciling person, you know, posture towards people, you know, graciousness, forgiving people. The greatest test of your theology is what is born out of it to determine how true and straight it is. So to what degree have you grown in your love for God? That's a hard question, isn't it? it it's kind of, it's a subjective question. It feels, so let me give you some maybe questions that will help make it more concrete. These come from uh, J.C. Ryle, he was a bishop, an uh, Anglican bishop in the 19th century. And many of you have read his book, Holiness, and these questions come out of that. He says, if we, so he compares it to a person. You know, how do we determine how much we love Christ? Well, he says, if you love a person, you'd like to think about him. If we love a person, we'd like to hear about him. If we love a person, we'd like to read about him. we like to please him. we like his friends. We're jealous about his name and honor, and we like to be always with him. 
So if we love Christ, how do those apply for you? It might be a point of consideration for us, even this afternoon, to, to talk to a, a good friend or maybe a spouse and say, help, help me parse out. Do I really love Christ? Am I growing? Is my theology, is my appreciation for the gospel, is it, is it producing love? Is it producing love in my relationships? So Paul, this, just in the beginning, Paul's saying the hope of the church is in grace and mercy and peace. And you see the mandate of the church is to, of course, promote sound doctrine, which issues forth in love. Is that taking place? And then, and then thirdly, and this is a little more challenging, he shows us how the church is to promote this sound doctrine. How do we do it? And, and look with me at 8 to 11. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. Now, Paul is telling Timothy about a right use of the law. Now remember, when Timothy was preaching in the pulpit at Ephesus, there was no New Testament, right? This is part of the New Testament, so it wasn't there when he was preaching. So what was he preaching out of? Well, he was preaching out of the law. Now the law can be the whole Old Testament, it can be the law and the prophets, it can be the first five books of Moses, it can be the Ten Commandments. The law has a, has a range of meanings. I think here it's probably speaking about the the first five books of Moses, or even the Ten Commandments. And what he's saying is, if you want a people to understand sound doctrine, you have to use the law lawfully. So he's telling Timothy, use the law. Now I know right now, if you're Christian here, you're thinking, uh, I'm dead to the law. I don't need the law. I have the gospel. The law is past tense. We're moving forward. We don't need the law. But he says, no, the law is, is good. He says, good. If it's used lawfully, and that begs the question, how do we use it lawfully? Well, remember, the gospel supersedes the law, but it doesn't render the law without function. So how do we use the law lawfully? Well, one way to not do it is to see the law as a ladder, and you're just going to keep improving as the years pass, and you're going to get holier and holier and holier if you keep trying harder and harder and harder. And one day you'll get to the top of the ladder, and he's going to say, great job, come on in, and, 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 and be a child. That's one way of looking at the law. But let me tell you, it's going to crush you. You can't do it. The demands of the law are beyond your capacity. I mean, think about it for a minute. And Jesus gives us, now, if you think of the law, as purely external, then you might grade yourself pretty high. But if you look at the law that, that rules our life, then you're not just looking at externally, but internally. So here's what I mean. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it say, you know, don't commit murder. Now, if, if we heard that, we might think, ah, okay, I got that one, check mark, I got an A on that part of the homework. But then Jesus says, but I say to you, if you've ever been angry at a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. Well, now what happens to all of us? Everyone in this room has been angry. We are lawbreakers. Or he says, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. Well, many, many of us might be able to say, well, I'm good there too. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever looked at a woman with lustful intent, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Ah, oh, guilty. So, so, so I'm a lawbreaker. 
So he's saying this about using the law lawfully. Is he's, the law is being used as a mirror to reveal us, to us, the nature of our condition before God. That's how to use the law lawfully, is to show us our desperate situation. That's why he goes through all these 14 descriptions of what an unjust person is. If you look at all those descriptions, you can get overwhelmed by it. He's giving plenty of examples that we can find ourselves. Well, I did that, yep, I did that, yep, I did that. And really, when I think you can take those 14 descriptions, it's really probably the Ten Commandments. Those first three couplets seem to speak to the first table of the law, the first four commands. And those next eight descriptors, that's really the balance of the six commands. So what he's saying is to use the law lawfully, the law acts like a judge declaring us guilty of breaking the law. So you're flying down 540 like many of you do, and you go 75 and you see the speed limit, you realize I've broken the law. The speed limit doesn't make you a better driver. It doesn't change your driving habits. It doesn't do anything for you other than reveal to you, oh, I broke the law. So Paul is saying to Timothy, to move a church to understand the gospel, to understand sound doctrine, they have to first begin that they have been lawbreakers. Now, Timothy is not seeking to just convict his church so that you all walk out of here with your tail between your legs. But the point of it is, revealing to you that we've broken the law gives us a hunger that we need to be delivered, saved, helped. And the reason I say that is because look with me, if your Bibles are open, look with me back at the text. In verse 8 he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, from there on, he goes into that kind of excursus over what all the disobedient means. But if you pick it back up in 11, it's like this. You could read it this way. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What's that mean, Paul? Then go to 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul's saying to use the law lawfully, it has to be in conjunction with the gospel. Law and gospel. Those are the two things we need. We need the law to awaken us to the reality of our sin because most of us will look at ourselves and say, I'm a pretty good person. And in many ways, in many levels, you may be, but not before the bar of God's justice. Maybe before the bar of what most people do, but when you stand before God, you're not going to find yourself with the same grade. And so the law awakens us to our sin, but it's to be used in accordance with the gospel, that it drives us to say, that's why God has sent a Messiah. Why else did Jesus come? He didn't come to educate us. He came to deliver us. You know, when Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, when he wrote a shorter catechism for children, he began with the Ten Commandments to help these children understand this is what makes us lawbreakers, and then he explains the gospel. He doesn't explain the gospel first. He wants us to see. To make us feel bad? No. So that we might be awakened. I really do need a Savior. I don't need a life coach. I don't need Jesus to come and kind of pat me along the way. I need him to deliver me from myself. That begins a love relationship with God who has saved. So when Carol and I were getting married, I asked her to marry me. We, got a, we went out to pick an engagement ring, and so we went to these, this jeweler, Mercado's, and, uh, 
and he put out the diamonds, right? They were big. Uh, but he put out the diamonds, uh, but they were so small that he needed to put a black felt. No, they, they always put that black felt kind of paper, or not paper, but um, kind of that black felt material on the glass case. And then they put the diamonds on there. And then I remember he held the one diamond, but he held it up against the black, and you were able to see the facets and the colors kind of reflecting off the corners of it. But it needed the darkness, the blackness, to see the beauty of the diamond. If we don't see the darkness from which we've come, it's hard to then appreciate the saving work that Christ has done for us. See, if we always think that we just need a little push over the line, then we're as appreciative of God as to the degree that we think we needed his help. Don't we see this in Luke 7? In Luke 7, you remember the story, Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee? And the Pharisee is looking at Jesus with a degree of skepticism. I'm not sure who this guy is. And it's only increased when the prostitute comes in and begins to weep on Jesus' feet and dry his feet with her hair. And now the Pharisee's saying, he really is a bad egg. He's not even pushing this woman away. And so Jesus tells him a parable. He says, hey, Simon, I got a question for you. There's one moneylender, and he loans a large amount to one and a small amount to another. And then he chooses to forgive them both. And he says to Simon, who's going to love him more? And Simon, being a wise guy, says, the one who had the greater debt forgiven. And he said, that's right. Now, Simon was wise enough to figure out this woman with the debt load of sin that she had, she's worshiping him. She's loving him, washing his feet. Simon, he says, you didn't even wash my feet. The, the, do, you, do you get it? To the degree that we understand, and this, is the, this is the crux of all Christianity. If we don't get this point, then we'll never really find God as incredibly loving and gracious and generous as he is. It begins with the Spirit waking us up to the nature of our sin. That's using the law lawfully, holding the law before you. So you say, I can't muster with that. I need help. I need, I need someone to deliver me. And what happens is when you do understand that, then you become quite happy. You become Because you now know I've got deliverance. And notice what he says here in 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That word blessed in Greek can be translated happy. It's like used in the, it's used in the Beatitudes. You know, happy or the peacemakers. God is a happy God. And God loves to save. It makes him happy as it were. Well, those of us who are being saved, it ought to make us happy to know that God has provided one. How happy are you over the gospel? And might your happiness increase if you understood the depth from which he has pulled you? So here we're looking at just at the beginning of this letter. You, you, you see the foundation of the church resting in these, these sweet little grace and mercy and peace you see, the mandate of the church is to, is to protect the church from false doctrine, to promote good doctrine, which is that stewardship of God. And, and then you see it's done by the using the law lawfully. Again, not to make you feel... So, so I guess I would ask you to consider this. 
Where do you sit with this? This is really a, a, a crux for many of us. When you look at that list of 14, do you find yourself in there? Because if you do find yourself in there, then, then there ought to be conviction. I have broken the law. I'm violated God. Maybe I'm not the person I thought I was. This isn't meant to depress. It's not meant to cause guilt. It's meant to bring conviction leading you to hope and long for one to save. And if you're here today and, and you've never connected your own brokenness with the saving work of Christ, that is how we become Christian, is we, we appeal to God for forgiveness, uh, looking to the Messiah, the one God sent to save and deliver all things to himself. If, if you're a Christian here, uh, then you look at this and you're just reminded of being thankful. Why would God, why would God be so generous? Why, why did he move toward us in this way? And, and it leads us really to worship in humility. So let's take a moment and just ask God to reveal himself to us. And by this I mean asking God. Even if you don't believe in him, then asking God to reveal himself to you. But uh, otherwise, ask him to open your eyes to these things. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.